Welcome to the sermon podcast of Gamble Street Baptist Church, Fort Worth, Texas. Gamble Street Baptist Church has been sharing the gospel for over 100 years. This podcast includes sermons from our traditional Sunday morning service and our contemporary services on Sunday evenings. We hope God speaks to you through this sermon. If you would turn with me to Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 10. Ephesians 6 and verse number 10. We'll read through verse 17 as we study tonight. Throughout history, there have been great generals. But to make a great general, it requires not only that they be a good tactician or a skilled soldier. It requires more than that. The best military leaders are ones that have an excellent understanding of the mission at hand, that which they're supposed to accomplish, and of the enemy that they're going to face, the hazard that his troops will face. You've got to know the layout of the land. Everything that the leader can know, he wants to make sure he knows and communicates to those who are following him. But I think even the with all of that taken in place, there's still one thing that really makes a good general stand out as great, as excellent. And that is, not only does he have all the, the necessary pieces, but he's able to motivate his troops. He's able to get them to say, yes, I will follow you into battle to go do what I need to do to accomplish the mission. And frequently, when you watch movies, you'll see this leader come and engage his troops with a speech before he, they go out into the battle. So in the 2009 film Gladiator, Russell Crowe's uh, character Maximus gives a short speech. It's only about 38 seconds long to motivate his troops. So uh, let's put up that video if we can. Three weeks from now, I will be harvesting my crops. Imagine where you will be. And it will be so. Hold the line! Stay with me! You find yourself alone, riding in green fields with the sun on your face. Do not be troubled, for you are in Elysium, and you're already dead! (laughs) Brothers, what we do in life echoes in eternity. As we look at Paul's closing of this letter, I'm picturing him like this general writing to the Ephesians, writing to these Christians that are there at Ephesus about the reality of the battle that is before them. He's laying out everything that they need to know, and then he's motivating them. Pick up your armor and let's go after it. So as we look at this, I want you to have this idea that when you accept Christ, you are enlisting in the army. You're enlisting in the army of the Lord, and you step into this fight, and so you need to be prepared to do battle as you do so. So as we kind of recap, from chapter 4, Paul has been outlining this idea of what a Christian life looks like. Here's how you are to walk. You are to walk in the Spirit. You are to walk worthy, and this is not easy. As he's laid out how we are to walk with others In unity, as we've laid out how to deal with one another in our most intimate of relationships, it's not easy. And we are called to fight the good fight. He wrote to 
Timothy in 1 Timothy 6. We are called to fight the good fight and not to become entangled in everyday affairs of the world, he says in 2 Timothy. And in this passage, in the use of the military imagery, we are reminded all the way back to the beginning of this, of this letter to the Ephesians, of their identity in Christ. And how we are to live in the midst of this alien society in which we find ourselves because we're no longer citizens of this world, but we're citizens of another world. Now, as we read through these verses tonight, we're going to see that Paul gives us the command multiple times to take up or to put on the armor, the full armor of God. And that's the imperative that we find throughout this passage. Take up the armor and put it on. But each time we also find that there's a reason, there's a purpose clause. He says, put on the armor so that you can stand firm. So that's going to be the theme as we're looking at this. What do we need to understand so that we can stand firm? So let's begin by looking at beginning in verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you'll be able to stand firm. Now, I'm going to pause there because we're going to come back to what we're standing firm against in just a moment. But first, I want us to see the power that we have to stand firm. The phrase as it's read here in, in the New American Standard, it says, be strong in the Lord. And I think that gives us this idea that it's this command that we are to do something. It's, it's for us to do this thing. But it's actually a passive word in the Greek. And it says it's more this idea of be strengthened. And so it's something from outside of us. This is, I think that better says what Paul's trying to say, that the Ephesians needed and what we need is an external power for us to be strengthened in the Lord. Now, as we think about this, uh, in the 19th century, um, Nietzsche wrote about the will to power. And he wasn't the first to come up with this, but he believed that there was an internal force that drives humanity to flourish. If you look at uh, traditional Chinese culture that believes in this idea, idea of the chi, right? You got to get your chi aligned or your chi is blocked and you're not able to get the life force, the energy that you need. And so there's this idea of this life force or this body's innate natural energy that we have to tap into to be able to do things. And if you go to any bookstore, you'll find a self-help book there that tells you you just need to tap into that inner power so that you can be strong and, and go forth and accomplish your goals. And that's not what we find here. It says that we are not sufficiently strong by ourselves to accomplish what we're trying to accomplish in this mission. It's only by God's power that he bestows upon us that we're strengthened by him, by this external source, so that we can win the spiritual battles that we face. Now, some have taken the same idea of this internal power, and they've externaled it a little bit uh, to try to apply it to God as like this kind of mystical force that you can control and manipulate. And as we said this morning, God cannot be manipulated. You, he's not something you can control. He can control you. But remember what happened in Acts chapter 19 when there were some Jewish exorcists who tried to use God like he was some kind of force and tried to use this magical formula. Listen to what he says. 19 verse 13. But also some of the Jewish exorcists who went from place to place attempted to name over those who had evil spirits the name of the Lord Jesus. So they were using Jesus' name. 
saying, I adjure you by Jesus whom Paul preaches. So that they don't have any kind of personal relationship going on anyway. One of the seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, was with them doing this. And the evil spirit answered to them and said, I recognize Jesus and I know about Paul, but who are you? Do you remember what happened after that? The man that they were trying to exercise this demon out of overpowered them, beat them up so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. They beat him up pretty bad. And so this idea of trying to manipulate this external force of God and, and you know, be strong is the way that we normally think about it. This is not what Paul's writing about here. It's, it's not a biblical idea. Instead, he points to the relationship that the Christian has. It's this be strengthened in the Lord, meaning that God grants us power because we have a union with Christ as believers. So if you're in Christ, you're already in a position of strength. And we're going to see more about this as we can continue through this passage tonight. But not only that, but we see there's this supernatural power. See, Paul challenged the Ephesians, be strengthened in the Lord by the strength of his might. And it's interesting because there's two words for strength there. The strength of his might. The first word there is kratos, which refers to this natural, supernatural power, while the second one refers to his inherent power. So this call is not to rely on your own power, but rely upon the supernatural inherent power that Christ himself, as God in the flesh, has. And when you unite with him, you have that power as well. But if we try to fight these spiritual battles with our human power, well, it's not going not gonna to go so well. Here's the thing, though. Jesus says that in Mark 14, he told his disciples, keep watching and keep praying that you may not come into temptation because while the spirit, the human spirit is willing, we're willing to take up this fight for God, but the weak, the flesh is weak. So we must rely, this is the call, we must rely on the power of Christ Jesus. Therefore, Paul says, we have to put on the full armor of God. We must be prepared to go into battle. But before Paul says what this preparation looks like at the end of this passage we're going to look at, um, he first addresses the enemy that we're going to face. So look with me at the end of verse 11 and into verse 12. He says, so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, and against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. So we see this enemy that we're to stand against. See, wearing armor serves a purpose. You don't just... When you're in the army, you have your uniform, right? You, you go around wearing your uniform. Everybody knows you're in the army. But you don't normally go around wearing your armor. That's only when you're in a combat area or a war zone. And so for the Christian, though, we have to recognize that we are in a war zone. The nature of Christian warfare is reality. We may not be able to see it physically with our eyes, but it is a reality that is before us at all times. And so we must always wear this armor. We must always have it on, and we must be ready, standing guard, vigilant, and watching, ready to take action. So Paul says that we put on the armor of God so that we can stand against the schemes of the devil. 
Now, this idea of standing firm indicates that we're in a posture of defense. We're, we've got our legs bent, you know, kind of squatted down so that when somebody comes to try to push us over, we're not just going to fall over. We're, we're ready. We're holding the position firmly. It's not about being in an offensive stance where we're running and taking off, but we're in a defensive stance, waiting and watching. The reality is that we already have a decisive victory. Christ Jesus has already taken care of that for us. So Paul's concern here is not really that we're ready for an offensive attack, but it's that we are here to stand firm and to be prepared to preserve and maintain what Christ has already begun doing, us, doing in us. So Paul first here points out that our struggle is not against flesh and blood. So we recognize human nature is fallen. Human nature can be cruel. Human nature is often ungodly on its own. It doesn't need help. We don't need help falling into the pit. We can do it ourselves. Thank you. Lead us not into temptation. We can find our way there ourselves. And so, but earlier in this letter, Paul said that unbelievers walk in this world. And they follow after the prince of this world. Remember back in Ephesians 2 verse 2. He says, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the power of the air of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. So just as the spirit of God works in us to lead us into righteousness, so also these spirits of disobedience work in unbelievers to lead them into further debauchery. And see, what he's trying to point here is that the enemy that we stand against, he's wily. He's... He's skillful, and he's deceitful, and he is well-practiced in his schemes, and he makes us think that we're fighting with other people when the reality is Satan is using sinful humanity to try to distract us and to deceive us. And so the believer must always be aware of this reality of Satan's strategies. His schemes are based on lies and deceit, and they're designed to deceive us, but it's not just him that we face. It's not just this one individual that we face. Paul briefly describes the spiritual enemies that we face. And I think it's best here to take a, a pause for a moment and talk about getting into the mindset of an ancient. Because we don't think the same way. We are products of the scientific revolution. We're the products of the modern mindset. We don't think about the spiritual realities the way that the ancients would think about it. So ancient, Greek, ancient Greeks, ancient Romans, ancient Jews, they thought of the spiritual world as a very real reality. I know that's redundant, but I don't have another word. It was a present, unseen reality that was always before them. And so as we lost many of these elements with rational modernism, Paul here, speaking about the the hosts that are in opposition to God, we, we oftentimes kind of overlook this and think of it in terms of these forces, kind of like we talked about some people think about God as being this force. So we don't really get this picture. And I was, uh, I worked for one of the Old Testament professors at the seminary. So I was talking with him about this. And the same thing is true here. These beings aren't really just this force that's out there that we can manipulate or think about that's coming into individuals and empowering them. But th these are actual demonic beings, individuals that comprise the host of Satan. And so while we seem to have no problem 
at least in the churches I've been in, to think of the hosts of heaven and picture individual angels. For some reason, when we start to picture the forces of darkness and the hosts of darkness, we just, we don't get the same picture. And I've also often wondered why that is. And I think it's because of the reality that it's scary. That when you think about demonic beings, it frightens us. But Paul here uses some language that I think it's important for us to kind of break down a little bit to see. And so he says, first, we're against the rulers. The rulers are the leaders. This means those are, who are primarily in power. And there are multiple leaders. There's multiple rulers that Paul's speaking about here. And these are powerful spirits that are up at the top of some sort of demonic hierarchy. Uh, we don't really understand all of it, even, even the Old Testament scholars that I've spoken with about this, but there's some kind of hierarchy, and these are at the top. They're the leaders. They're the generals, and they, they are under Satan's leadership. And then the second word, he says, is against the powers. This is those who have a freedom to act. There's this idea of authority, that, that they have been granted authority over something, Um, They also appear to be subject to the devil, as we read in verse 11. And they've been granted over the authority of the realm, as mentioned in chapter 2, verse 2, that we read a minute ago. So there's two of them so far. And then he says, not only against, we're not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, and against the world forces of this darkness. Now this is an interesting idea here. It's a word that is unique to the New Testament. This is the only place this word is used. It's not found anywhere else outside of Paul's writing here. But in the world outside of the New Testament, it's used frequently to speak of other deities. So in in Greek culture, as I'm sure you're familiar, there was uh, gods who controlled certain aspects of the universe. There was, say, Zeus who controlled what? The sky realm. He had two brothers. You remember what they controlled? The sea, Poseidon controlled the sea, and Hades controlled the underworld. So this idea that Paul is using here, that was what was used in other sources for those type of individuals. Now, it wasn't even unique to the Greeks or the Romans. It was also used in Jewish writings. They have a similar idea, but in each of those, this idea is applied to angelic beings, not that are applied to certain domains of nature, but to certain nations of the earth. And these beings, in Jewish understanding, they were all evil spirits that were over these other nations. And so even Paul, as you look at other writings, he seems to understand and agree with this understanding as he calls them of these creatures of darkness, meaning that they're evil, they're against God. But if you look over in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 20, he says, uh, But I say that the things with the Gentiles sacrifice... They sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to become sharers in demons. So this supernatural spiritual understanding that is taking place in this passage and in ancient thought, Paul brings here to us and to the Ephesians to say, listen, this is the reality of the people, of of the forces, the individuals, the hosts that you are against. But there's a final one that he use, uses, and it kind of sums all this up. That he says it's against the spiritual forces of wickedness and the heavenly places. Now, there is a lot of debate about what this exactly means. 
But I think the main point here is that Paul speaks of spiritual beings that are against God. They are wicked. They, these are not some abstract, abstract spiritual forces, but they're specific beings. In fact, one commentator went so far as to call it the host of wickedness rather than forces to try to help distinguish this idea. That these are equivalent to the host of heaven, the angels in heaven, but they're on the opposite side. They're against God. And it is against this vast cosmic struggle that Paul says we're stepping into as believers. We are struggling. The, the idea of struggling here carries this idea of wrestling or of close combat with the enemy. And so due to the, the schemes of Satan and of his forces, believers need to be ready to engage not only in, in far off. We, we think oftentimes, well, that's stuff that goes on on the other side of the world. They're, that's where they talk about seeing demons and, and stuff all the time in other cultures. But it, so we oftentimes think of it as this remote thing, but it's also, we have to be prepared for close combat. But one, of the, one thing that we need to keep in mind as we're reading all of the, about these forces that Paul's putting up this picture of this vast enemy that we stand against, he says, let's go back to Ephesians 1. Ephesians 1, look at verse, beginning in verse 20. What, what has he already said about this? He brought about in Christ, that is talking about God, he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Does that sound familiar? Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, that's us, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So Christ has already defeated them. And if we're in Christ, we've already defeated them. It's, a, it's not a matter of victory. It's a matter of containing, standing firm against the enemy when we've already won. And so, as is our, often the case, this has an element of this is already, but not yet, taking place. Because the reality is, the victory is secured. Christ has done it for us. But until he returns and eliminates all evil, we're stuck here in this present reality with spiritual warfare taking place. Therefore, back to chapter 6, verse 13 Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything, once again we see this, to stand firm. So we have another call here to stand firm. Having described the enemy forces, Paul once again resounds the call to do what you can do to stand firm against this enemy. And he says, how do you do it? You take up the full armor of God. You have to be prepared for the battle. Verse 13 is basically a restatement of what he began to say in verse 11, but with a different application. Instead of saying, this is the enemy you're against, he says, here are your weapons that you're going to use. Here is your armor that you're going to use. And unlike when we saw in verse 10, where be strengthened is a passive, here in verse number 13, this call to put on your armor it is an active. So it's, it's up to us to do this. You must put on the full armor of God. Now, what does the armor of God mean? 
Well, Paul's going to give us some breakdown of uh, illustration in a moment. But before we get to that, I think there's two aspects about this armor of God idea that we need to examine. First is, God is the source of the armor. We don't have to, to come and manufacture these things that we're going to read about on our own. God has already created what we need, and he's giving it to us. And all we have to do is take that armor and put it on and cinch it up and get ready to go. He has provided all that we need. This is a grace gift to us. It's specifically designed to protect against all the schemes of the devil. And we'll see that in just a moment. And in the verses that follow... Paul alludes to some Old Testament verses that speak about God as a warrior. And sometimes these are a direct correlation. Sometimes they seem to be a, a kind of a loose correlation that Paul maybe had this idea in the back of his mind and he kind of manipulated it a little bit to fit this context. But I think this is Paul's way of saying that not only is this armor given to us by God, but it's rem reminiscent of the armor that God himself uses in the Old Testament when he's described as a warrior. And he's given that to us. And so he says we use this armor for a purpose to stand firm and to resist in the evil day. Now, once again, there's debate about what does it mean to resist in the evil day? What is this evil day? Well, I think there's also two components about this that uh, have been debated. Some say it's one thing, some say it's the other, and I say it's both. It's in the middle. The one says the evil day is taken by some to mean a day in the future that we're waiting for when Satan masses before us in his final strike, and then Christ comes in with his church and the angelic forces, and he stands against them at that time. And so we are to be prepared and ready for that. The others take this evil day to mean what we're living in right now, the time until Christ returns. So I think both is correct, that we must be prepared for everyday evils that we face. We must, we realize we're in a combat zone and we're constantly engaged in spiritual warfare. But I also think there's a time of heightened spiritual battles. Because just like in physical combat, you, you may be in a war zone you may be serving in a war zone if you're in the military and you've got, you know, you, you know that there's, there's things going on around you, but you're wearing your armor and you're sitting there flipping hot hamburgers on your grill. But then bullets start whizzing by and you hear missiles whistling as they come by and you realize, okay, now things are heightened up and, and it's time to, to change my tactics a little bit and get, take a different approach. And so I think this is the reality that we live in a time where we're in a war zone and there's skirmishes taking place all around us. And that one day, this will, um, will have a culmination into a climactic final battle. But here's the thing. At that climactic final battle, we're just spectators, really. Because Christ comes in and he judges the devil and all of his hosts and he throws them into the lake of fire. That's what Revelation says. So that's, until then... I think we just have to do what Paul's saying here and stand against the foe in this defensive posture. And then as we get into verse 14, Paul gives us a series of, of um, illustrative applications here. So let's read the whole uh, 14 through 17 and then go through and break that up accordingly. 
Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, in addition to all, taking up the shield of faith, which which with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. And verse 17, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And so, as I've already alluded to, God gives us the resources that we need to be able to fight this fight, to stand firm. Paul illustrates this idea here using the pieces of armor. And I don't think Paul, some of the commentators think, well, Paul wasn't probably using the Romans because he doesn't talk about all the different aspects of their armor. And I don't think that was Paul's purpose. And I think it would be uh, foolish to say, well, Paul wasn't thinking about the Romans when he's imprisoned in Rome under house arrest. He's seeing them go by every day. So I think he's got both that and these Old Testament pictures of God in his mind. And he's combining these ideas together to help us and understand and to illustrate this truth to us. So I, he, he illustrates with this. He begins with having girded your loins with truth. And, you know, in common vernacular of the church, we'll, we just call it the belt of truth. What is the belt? What does the belt do? It's the outer garments are held in place by the belt and the belt holds the weapons. The belt provides support and braces the soldier to be ready for action with truth. Remember what Jesus called Satan? He called him the father of lies. Therefore, how do you best stand against Satan? With truth. But in a society like what we live in, where truth is often subjective, how does this truth apply? What does Paul have in mind here? Well, I may be overstepping here, and I totally admit that this may be the case. But I think he has both objective and subjective truth in mind. They're both at play because believers understand God is the God of truth. He has objective truth. And so we believe that. We understand that. But the the thing about it is this objective truth of God as being reliable and faithful are basic to all the other pieces of the armor that we're going to talk about. But when the believer takes that truth and internalizes it, and conforms their life to it, that truth is not only objective truth, but now it's subjective truth. It's your truth to understand taking this objective truth and transforming it into subjective truth. And so as you experience the truth of God, it becomes part of your reality, part of your story. And you take what the Bible says, this objective truth that God has given us, and you follow it with integrity. The second part of that same verse talks about the breastplate of righteousness. Now, what does the, pre- what does the breastplate do? The breastplate protects the vital organs. And so I think we're not speaking here about this idea of justifying righteousness of Christ, but I think it's more of this personal ethical quality that we take the righteousness that God has and we see that, and we conform our lives to it. That's what Paul's been writing about in this whole, whole letter anyways, is conforming our lives to the pattern that Christ has set forth. And so when we do that, by taking these attributes of Yahweh, this righteousness, we, we seek to conform ourselves to Christ. We align ourselves with his word that he gives us, 
And we began to display personal righteousness that when Satan, remember Satan is the accuser also, so he's the liar and he's accuser, but when Satan accuses us, he has no ammo. The, the accusation falls short because we are not harboring and nurturing sin because we're striving to be like Jesus and we're seeking to walk in the Spirit. We defend against this accusation of wrongdoing that Satan hurls against us. Verse 15, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Now, a Roman soldier would wear a shoe that is called a collage. These are heavily sold, hobnailed, military standard issue shoes that every soldier got. These weren't sandals that were made for running. They had little nails sticking through them or little, little buds. Kind of remind me of track shoes, actually, when I look at them. Uh, but they're not used for running. They're used to make sure when you dig in to the ground, you're firm, your, your stance is sure, your, your footing is sure, it's not going to shift. And so for the Christian, our sure footing is the gospel. Paul calls this gospel specifically the gospel of peace. Well, as we think about Satan, what does Satan try to do? He tries to divide us. He tries to divide and conquer but the gospel of peace is embodied in Christ, who is our peace. And the gospel of peace, as it is applied, has two axes. There's the vertical aspect where he has made peace between us and God. But there's also the, the vertical, I mean the horizontal axis, where the gospel unites believers together despite our differences into a unity that Paul's already been talking about in Ephesians chapter 2. And so the in Ephesians 2, Paul wrote that Jesus brought the two together, the Jews and the Gentiles who hated one another. He brought, a, a, he brought peace to them. And so we're, we're united and we stand for sure in the gospel of peace. And the unity of the church demonstrates to the demonic powers their own death. And because of that, uh, because it's a witness to their death, Intense spiritual opposition comes against the church. And that's why I think we so, see so many churches that are divided by non-essential things. Instead of standing together on the sure foundation of the gospel of peace, they want to fight over things that really don't matter. They want to fight over things that are not important because Satan is at work and he's trying to discredit the church of Christ. And so here Paul is, is speaking about the gospel of peace, not, not as something that we're going forth and preaching, although we should do that, but it's being the grounds, the firm footing for which we stand and we can fight. And it's, I think it's somewhat paradoxical that the gospel of peace is what you have to do for warfare against Satan. But that's not all. In verse 16, he says, in addition to taking all of that, take up the shield of faith, which, which, with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Now, the Romans used all kinds of different shields. There were some round ones, but I think what Paul probably has in mind here is this scutum, which you can see up here, is kind of a rectangular-shaped shield that kind of wraps around the body a little bit. Uh, Roman soldiers would use this scutum uh, together in a formation known as the testudos, which is a word uh, for turtle. And it's a protective screen that is formed 
by the body of troops coming together, holding their shields together, overlapping, and some over their heads in such a way that it kind of resembles the shell of a turtle. That's why it's called that. Um, And so this formation offered a consistent defensive strength against the opposing infantry and excellent protection against arrows and other uh, missile-like attacks. In fact, the Greek philosopher Plutarch describes this formation as it was used in, uh, in the invasion of Parthia in 36 BC, saying this, Then the shield bearers wheeled around and enclosed the light-armed troops within their ranks, dropped down to one knee, and held their shields out as a defensive barrier. The men behind them held their shields over the heads of the first rank, while the third rank did the same for the second rank. And the resulting shape, which is a remarkable sight, looks very like a roof and is the surest protection against arrows, which just glance off of it. And then a later Roman historian uh, said that when the Romans got into their their testudos, uh, nothing but shields can be seen in every part of the phalanx alike. And all the men, by the density of the formation, are under shelter from missiles. Indeed, it is so marvelously strong that men can walk upon it, and whenever they come to a narrow ravine, even horses and vehicles could drive over it. And to make them even more effective, they had the wood, but then they would put, it, put leather over the top, and they would soak that leather in water so that when their enemies shot flaming arrows at them, it didn't catch the wood on fire. They just fizzled out. And so as we think about this, and how does that apply? What's Paul trying to tell us? What is Satan's favorite scheme? What does he always try to do? He always tries to lie, but he asks this question. We see it from the very beginning. Has God indeed said? He wants us to have some doubt, some unbelief, to lose our faith. But then the Apostle John wrote in 1 John chapter 5, For whatever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that overcomes the world, our faith. So Christians are tempted a lot of times to lay aside the shield of faith and attempt to battle against Satan and his forces on our own strength, but rather we have to take up the shield of faith. And I think one thing that is additional here that we don't often hear is this good reminder that just as they come together to create this this overall unity and strong strength in the Roman soldier system, it's the same thing with us Christians. God has put us together in local churches so that we can come together to hold one another and to to strengthen one another in faith. And so that when one is having issues and failing in the faith, they can help one another up. They can help to cover one another. It's the the strength of the church that helps with the unity, uh, that helps with the, the faith of the individual. But it does require all the individuals to take up their shield of faith and hold them together to have that strength. It's not enough for just one to do it. You can't have just the pastor and his faith and everybody trying to get under his shield. It's not going to work. Everybody has to have the strength of the shield come together and cover one another so we can prevent unexpected attacks. We've got two more. Verse 17, take up the helmet of salvation. Now, in physical warfare, these two items would be the last pieces the soldier would pick up, the helmet and then the sword. The helmet of salvation protects another important area. We talked about the 
the covering of the vital organs, but the head is also a vital place. I think Paul is speaking here about two aspects of salvation. I think first is the secure knowledge of our salvation, and the second is the hope of our salvation. Because with your head covered in battle, there, there's, a, there's an element of safety. There's an element of just feeling confident in the midst of battle because you've got your, your head protected. And so the believer's possession of salvation gives us confidence to go forth into the battle and to withstand the assaults of, of the devil in safeness. Knowing that even if you fall, even if you fail, Christ has secured your salvation. It's not up to you. Christ has already taken care of it. But also it gives us hope. And that is the hope that Christ's return will come. And we'll have final salvation. And we hope, we have that knowledge of hope. And so as Satan tries to distract us with, with unimportant things in our lives, we can cling to that hope and know that one day our salvation fully and finally will come. And so until then, we can stand firm. And then the final piece of the armor, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Final piece of the armor is the sword. The Romans used a sword that was called a gladius. It was about two to three feet long. It was about two inches wide. It had a double blade, which made it excellent for slashing, but it also had a penetrative edge. And so they would often use it. They would approach with the shield, and they'd reach out and just stab. And if you got a gut shot back in those days, it was pretty much a death sentence. It was fatal even if it didn't kill you immediately. Well, Paul defines that the believer's weapon is the word of God. The spirit is the source of the Bible. It is, he has given it to us through men who he divinely inspired. It is, the, it is directly from God through his spirit that we have the word, but it's also by the spirit that the word has its cutting edge. He's the one who gives it power. He's the one who makes it effective. And so as we prepare to stand, we, we pray to him to use the word that he, we've meditated upon, that we've had allowed to penetrate our hearts, to use to stand against the enemy. And you know who used this to great effect? Jesus, Matthew 4. When Satan came to tempt him, Jesus fought off every attack using the word. He overcame Satan's advances. He parried those and overcame with Scripture. And you know, sometimes a good offense is the best defense. The gospel word sounds the note of judgment, and it announces the defeat of the enemy, of these ungodly powers. Second Thessalonians 2, Then that lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. And then in Isaiah 11 as well, he will strike the earth with what? The rod of his mouth. And with the breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked. So here's my question to you tonight. Are you prepared to stand firm against these forces that Paul's been talking about? The Christian must fight the spiritual enemies with weapons that are not of human making. We don't fight a human enemy. We fight a spiritual enemy. So we need spiritual weaponry. And the church, that is the body of Christ, we are in this warfare together. We stand together against this enemy. The Roman soldier did not fight alone. There was always a unit 
And the same is said for us. The believers in the body stand firm together, united under the supreme commander who has already overcome the enemy. As, we, as I begin to wrap up here, Matthew Henry gives us this quote. And I love this. We have enemies to fight against. We have a captain to fight for. We have a banner to fight under and certain rules of war by which we are to govern ourselves. And this armor is prepared for you. But you must daily put it on. So pray daily for God's grace, for God's power. Use what he has already provided to you and stand firm as you fight in Christian warfare. Let us pray. Father, we thank you so much for your great love for us. Lord, that as we stood condemned under sin, under attack by Satan, bound in chains to him, you came and you fought by sacrificing your one and only son, who was himself God in the flesh. And by him, you overcame the enemy you overcame sin and death and Satan and the grave. And by him, you give us the power that we need to be free. Father, we thank you so much. Lord, if there's anyone here that has not accepted that offer of your salvation through Jesus, I pray that they would respond to this message tonight by calling upon you in faith. And Lord, for anyone that's here tonight that's struggling in this battle against sin, and the darkness of the forces of darkness. Lord, that they would turn to you, turn to your word, turn to your spirit, turn to your son, and look for the strength from him. I pray this in Jesus' holy and precious name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Gamble Street Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. If you have questions, we would love to speak with you. Please call 817 926 1785 to speak with a minister. If you live in or will be traveling to the Fort Worth area, we would love to have you visit. Gambrel Street Baptist Church has six church goals to reach the lost for Christ, to learn more about Christ, to touch the city through Christ, to train leaders to serve Christ, to embrace the world with Christ, and to build strong families in Christ. Please join us for our next episode.